In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I'm your host, Dan, and I'm joined in this studio by my co-host, Evan. How's it going? Today, we will be ranking the greatest U.S. presidents. But this isn't WatchMojo.com. Oh, no. This is the Sons of Antiquity podcast. So you know that we can't just give you a short and sweet list and call it a day. No, sir. We are going to give the people what they really want. And what they want is not a listicle. We are not going to fall into the Gen Z trap. Am I right? Right. And I knew exactly what you were talking about when you said watchmojo.com. Oh, I can't tell you how many watchmojo.com videos I've watched. Believe me, they are addictive. But we're not going to do that today. Let's talk about what we are going to do today. First, the criteria we will use to evaluate the presidents we have picked. Then we'll cover notable wars and the presidents involved. We'll talk about the presidents with military experience and different political interpretations of history. Then we'll go into brief history of American political parties. And keeping all that in mind, we will give you our choices and reasoning. And finally, when will we have our next great president? That is the question we will ask. Or is the age of the dictator for life finally upon us? So here are the criteria we will use to evaluate the presidents. Domestic policy. Did the president increase or decrease taxes? Did they regulate or deregulate industries? Did they facilitate the creation of jobs or promote public projects which benefited the nation? Did they respect individual or civil rights? Did they engage in executive overreach or did they stay in their lane, so to speak? This is where we're going to differ, Dan. I'm not going to analyze presidents from exclusively libertarian point of view. Sometimes increased taxes are necessary. Sometimes, let's say at the beginning of the 1900s, Industry needed regulation. Have you ever heard of Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle? Oh, believe me, I have. Factory food was disgusting back then and could have really benefited from some regulation, which it did get in the progressive era. I will agree that causing more jobs to be created or some amount of public works is a good thing. Sometimes ignoring rights and overusing executive power are necessary evils. I have Lincoln in mind. We'll get to him. Overall, here are my questions. Did the president solve major problems that occurred during his presidency? Did he cause unity or cause division? Did he allow or cause the economy to be prosperous? Did he rule with prudence and justice? Was he cruel to any group of people? Did he exert his authority beyond necessity? Did he set a bad precedent? Then we'll consider foreign policy. Did the president start new wars or finish existing ones? Were those wars necessary or foolish? Did they maintain international peace or destabilize different regions? Did they forge alliances or profitable trade agreements? Did they help find new resources for the nation? Did they follow just war principles for the most part? And now let's talk about favorability real quick. What did the general public think of these presidents? How were they viewed by historians and biographers after their time? Were their policies popular? And did they set precedents for later presidents? And lastly, we will consider the promises kept. What were their campaign platforms and did they succeed in accomplishing what they originally set out to do? All right, let's get into a discussion of the notable wars and precedents involved. But before I do that, I need to flex for a minute. Go ahead, flex away. Now, I don't have a list in front of me, but I'm going to recite all the presidents in order. 
And I can verify that there is no list in front of him. Yes. Okay, starting from the beginning in order, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Quincy Adams, Jackson, Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, Tyler, Polk, Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce, Buchanan, Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland, Benjamin Harrison, Cleveland, McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, FDR, Truman, Eisenhower, JFK, LBJ, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, H.W. Bush, Clinton, W. Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Excellent. Outstanding. Now, I don't have a list in front of me, so I can't verify that he got them all in order, but it sounded pretty close to me. 10 out of 10. Excellent job, sir. Anyways, war. War never changes. One could argue that every nation can be defined by the wars they fought and the men who led them, and the U.S. is definitely no exception. The United States has been involved in nearly 100 wars, both near and far. Some involved few personnel and little time and effort from the United States, while others demanded the bulk of our military might, or were fought over the course of decades. We'll give you the highlights. First up, the War of 1812, which involved a Madison. This war pitted the U.S. against Britain once again, though not in so epic a fashion as the Revolution decades earlier. Britain was embroiled in a war with France, which prevented America from trading with either major world power without angering the other. In an attempt to get Britain to negotiate, American forces invaded British-controlled Canada, but this effort went poorly and saw only moderate success near the end of the war. The British struck in Baltimore but were defeated at Fort McHenry, but not before they burned down the White House and other D.C. landmarks. The final naval battle inspired Francis Scott Key's poem, part of which became the national anthem. Britain eventually repealed their trade regulations, and a peace treaty was signed in 1814. 15,000 Americans died in the war. Next up is the Mexican-American War. This was uh, James K. Polk. This two-year war, from 1846 to 1848, was fought over Texas. A decade prior, Texas won independence from Mexico, and needless to say, Mexico was upset. The U.S. courted the independent republic and offered to accept it into the Union, along with Oregon, Arizona, California, and a few other states. Mexico considered this attempt at annexation an act of war. In response, Polk urged Congress to declare war, which they did. With an army consisting mostly of volunteers, the U.S. defeated Mexico and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed in May of 1848. As part of the treaty, the U.S. assumed control of Texas, Arizona, Wyoming, California, Utah, New Mexico, and Nevada, cutting Mexico's territory in half in exchange for a measly $18 million. Don't say we never gave you nothing. And now, the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln. As the nation grew and new territories were added to the Union, tensions between North and South came to a head when newly elected President Lincoln announced that slavery would not be allowed in any new American states. Angering Southerners who were already critical of the federal government's supposed overreach on the matter of states' powers. It also would have given non-slave states a national majority. Many Southern states seceded, seven in total, forming the Confederate States of America. The next few years saw the North's strategy change from only quick suppression of rebellion and resolution to total war as the South put up stiff resistance and Lincoln's aims became abolitionist. Loss after loss led to the destruction of the South's economic lifeblood. 
With countless acres of cropland burned to the ground at the hands of General Sherman, Confederate armies began to surrender, and when Confederate President Jefferson Davis was apprehended in Georgia in the spring of 1865, the war ended. At least 600,000 men died fighting in the Civil War, with the majority being Union soldiers. Hot take, General Robert E. Lee, most overrated general of all time. How could you say that? Wasn't Get even, out of here. Wasn't even good. Leave the studio now. Don't disrespect that man in my presence again. Yeah, right. <laughs> they did like a, a statistical analysis of all the generals, mm-hmm. and he got a below average score. With like win-loss ratio and things like that? Well, it was a lot of other factors, but yeah. They, they determined that a random person would have done as good as the Lee did. Ouch. Now the Spanish-American War in the late 1800s. McKinley led that one. The first overseas conflict fought by the U.S. The American Navy easily defeated the fledgling Spanish fleet in the Philippines, while McKinley prepared troops for a mission to take Manila. The U.S. liberated Cuba from Spanish control, granting them independence, but they did not do the same for the Philippines. Yeah, they kicked the Spanish out of there, but they kept it under U.S. control, angering guerrilla rebels who had requested American aid in the first place and leading to further conflicts in the future. Obviously, we're not there anymore, but it, yes. was a, it was a bloody few years there. Yeah, until about the 40s, I think, when uh, they finally gained independence. But there was a lot of stuff going on with Teddy Roosevelt, and um, that was a pretty rough patch there. Next up is World War I. This was Woodrow Wilson at the helm. An entanglement of alliances led to the largest global war ever waged on Earth until the second one broke out two decades later. <laughs> Russia, Great Britain, France, America, and uh, other forces formed the Allied Powers. They teamed up to fight Austria-Hungary, Germany, and a few other smaller countries, which became the Central Powers. The Allies won and pushed uh, harsh terms on the Central Powers, uh, especially Germany. Wilson was a dogmatic anti-monarchist, and World War I caused Russia, Austria-Hungary, and Germany to lose their monarchies. Wilson's attempted League of Nations failed after his Congress would not ratify it, lol. Mm, sad. And of course, there's World War II. That was mostly Franklin Delano Roosevelt. However, Truman did end it. Everyone knows about World War II, so we won't go into detail. Allies good, Hitler bad, we nuked Japan twice. The end. The Korean War. And this was mostly Truman and a little bit of Eisenhower. After World War II, Korea was liberated from Japan, but the Koreans in the North, supported by the communist uh, Russians and China, invaded the South, supported by the UN and led by the US. After almost losing, the South pushed the communists all the way to China, but then China intervened and pushed the South to the center line of the country. Eisenhower negotiated a ceasefire treaty splitting Korea down the 38th parallel, which still remains today. And then we have Vietnam, almost infamous of wars. JFK started it, LBJ really got things going, and Nixon was strong about it, but he ended it for pragmatic reasons. The war was an utter failure for a number of reasons. Micromanagement by politicians, young and poorly trained soldiers, unclear objectives and planning, little support at home which devolved into outright hatred for the war effort, politicization, unflattering media coverage, and most of all, the absolute worst combat environment. Next up, the Gulf War. This was H.W. Bush, and it was a big win. Liberated Kuwait from Saddam Hussein's Iraq. It was a 43-day campaign from start to finish and known as the 100-hour ground war. It lifted up America's spirits at home. Of course, that was preceded a few years later by the War on Terror, which uh, didn't do uh, what the 
Gulf War did for American morale. This, uh, of course, was um, involving W. Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden. 9-11 and Saddam's supposed possession of weapons of mass destruction led Bush to invade Iraq. They did depose Saddam, and the war might have brought stability to Iraq with the right leadership, strategy, and resolve. But American opinion soured a few years in for similar reasons to Vietnam. Obama ended the Iraq war, at least he kept uh, his campaign promise there, but started fighting in Afghanistan and did succeed in killing uh, infamous cave dweller Osama bin Laden. Yes, he technically did get killed under Obama's watch. Despite being labeled a violent madman, Trump was more of a dove than the previous two presidents and started the withdrawal process, accepting the inevitability of Taliban rule in Afghanistan. He did help kill off uh, ISIS in Syria and Iraq, though. Biden continued the withdrawal process but botched it at the end and saw lots of people left behind and uh, lots of sketchy Afghans strewn about America. There was also action in Syria, but that's a whole other can of worms. Now, why do we bring up America's greatest wars in regards to the greatest presidents? It shows surprisingly and against the trope that wartime presidents are not necessarily famous or well-regarded by historians. The Mexican-American War added vast swaths to the country, but the average person doesn't know anything about Polk. They may not even know his name. McKinley expelled the Spanish from the Western Hemisphere, but the same goes for him. Even the tallest mountain in North America was changed from Mount McKinley to Denali. But something else becomes clear. Presidents who led unpopular or unsuccessful wars are usually remembered poorly. Think of Lyndon B. Johnson and Nixon for Vietnam, Bush for Iraq, and Madison for the War of 1812. Yes, especially for Bush, Nixon, LBJ. Very bad reviews. Very low on Rotten Tomatoes for them. (laughs) Nixon would be higher rated if it wasn't for Watergate. Probably. He might have made, if it weren't for Watergate, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, yeah. There was definitely (laughs) some controversy there. So here's a fun fact. America's longest war is actually not Vietnam or the War on Terror. It is technically the Apache Wars, fought against the Apache Indian tribes in the Southwest Territories from 1849 to 1886. That's 37 years. It ended with the surrender of the famous Geronimo and a victory for the U.S. Army. Apache raids continued sporadically well into the 20th century, however, so one could argue that the war might have lasted until about 1924 when the final Apache raid ever recorded on U.S. land occurred. I think they just stole some horses, so can you really consider that an act of war? Uh, Maybe not. You be the judge of that one. Anyway, the 37-year portion of the war involved 12 presidents in total, from James Polk through Grover Cleveland. Now let's go to presidents and their military experiences. Now, we will only list those with high military commands, and we're talking about pre-presidential careers, too. Of course, every president is commander-in-chief, but we're not going to mention that. George Washington was general of the armies, the top general in the country. Dwight Eisenhower and Ulysses Grant were generals of the army, or five-star and four-star generals, respectively. Andrew Jackson, William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, Rutherford B. Hayes, James Garfield, and William Taft were major generals, two-star generals. Franklin Pierce, Chester Arthur, Andrew Johnson, and Benjamin Harrison were brigadier generals, or one-star generals. So there are 13 presidents so far who have not been veterans at all, and here they are. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Martin Van Buren, Grover Cleveland, Woodrow Wilson, Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover, Franklin Roosevelt, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden. Trump is the only president with no military or political experience prior to taking office. 
The rest of the presidents served in the military but were not generals. Only one was an enlisted soldier, James Buchanan. To tally up, about 28% of the presidents were generals, 70% were officers, 72% were veterans, and 28% were not veterans. It's easy to see that it is more common for our presidents to be veterans than not, yet the last three presidents never served. Non-veterans have been president all throughout our history, of course, but most notably our last three and four out of our last five have not served. Trump and Biden received a ton of deferrals to avoid the draft. Trump infamously avoided the draft because of bone spurs, but less well-known is that Biden was classified as unavailable for duty because of asthma. He got five deferrals really? before that. For asthma. No, just five deferrals because he was in college. And then he got out of college and got out because he had asthma. Oh. I mean, Trump got four and then he was, he had bone spurs or whatever. Interesting. Sad. Let's go over the different political interpretations of history because this really shapes our modern debates. Let's go over the great men versus social forces theories of history. Is history guided by a handful of incredible individuals who get stuff done or nearly inevitable social forces? I opine that it's some of both. You can't look at someone like Napoleon and say he was just a product of his times, guiding the French to their destiny. Far from it. No, he single-handedly changed history. There has never been a better, better general, in my opinion. Except for maybe Alexander the Great. That's some food for thought there. I think Alexander's number two. Well, he, at least he's, if he's top five, that's all I, I really care about. Yep. Now, the same could be said of many others. What if Washington had been more ambitious and made himself king? He definitely had the support for that. What if Caesar hadn't crossed the Rubicon? What if Jesus hadn't made an appearance on earth? With that being said, you also can't say that the leaders are the only reason things happen. They often respond to circumstances that have been set by the masses or a bunch of tribes or whatever. To use an earlier example, example with Caesar, no matter how great a dictator he may have been, there was no way for him to escape the envy and the hatred of the Roman elite. All actions have consequences, and no man can take full control of the world or the people around him. Right, so the first one we're going to talk about is the traditional interpretation and teaching of history. History can be described, according to this philosophy, as the actions of great men who rose up and changed the world. If you're taught this way, you will memorize important dates, battles, events, and men, and this is probably how your parents and grandparents were taught. And if they hate history, it's for this reason. You'll often learn about this from the perspective of your own nation with a nationalistic flavor. This is probably, like I said, how your forebearers were taught. This theory prefers the great men version. Then there's a slightly different version, the progressive Marxist version. Slightly. Uh, well, I use that term loosely. <laughs> this theory focuses on minority groups and women. In American history, uh, they tend to decry the treatment of blacks and Native Americans, object to the situation of immigrants after the Civil War, and point out the lack of female representation in textbooks. The purely Marxist approach describes history as an inevitable change from slavery to feudalism to capitalism to socialism and then to communism, culminating in the total domination of the workers over their exploiters. Uh, these people prefer the social forces theory of history, and it's all about class interaction and class warfare, so to speak. Yep. Then there's the libertarian view. They are focused on the size and scope of the government and the respect paid to individual liberty. Basically, libertarians say America got worse as time went on. And from a libertarian point of view, I think it's hard to debate that. Mm -hmm. The Constitution is the, quote, holy document, and all innovations are evil. I straw man a little bit. 
but it's it's kind of how they see it. The Constitution is the high point. Yeah, for I most of them. To if we're gonna talk about this just briefly here, I would say that there could be some definite innovations on the Constitution, and I think some of them might go a little bit overboard with it. But I think um, many of them simply just recognize that the Constitution is great and it's what we have. Like we can imagine a, a better, different system, but that's the system we were given. I agree. So they would say an increase in government is a decrease in freedom, and that's a decrease in happiness. They tend to like early presidents and the Gilded Age presidents, who infamously did not do much. That's why they're not remembered, but that's why the libertarians love them. Libertarians use both theories of history as it fits their narrative. Some of them like the Articles of Confederation, some like the Confederacy, some like strict constitutionalism, and some of them just want anarchy. Now, if we both accept that history is guided by some social forces and some great men, I would question why it's wrong for libertarians to analyze history with both. You know, why criticize them for that uh, and say, that oh, they only use it to fit their narrative as if that's a bad thing. You know, I'm no libertarian necessarily, but why not use both to answer the questions about history? My point was not to criticize using both theories of history. In fact, as I'm about to say, I think both theories should be utilized because each contains some truth. However, I say that libertarians are very selective in their usage of both theories, only applying them when it supports their thesis. For example, they will surely take the side of slaves and Native Americans. But what about the immigrant workers who were maltreated by their greedy, greedy mega employees? Employers, I'm sorry. Oh, the, uh, uh, they're a private company. They can yeah. do what they want. Yeah, that's what they'll come at you with. I'm just saying, you're, you can't, they're not being, being very consistent with the two theories. It's whichever affirms the libertarian point of view. I can see that. Yeah, that's my opinion. They also harp on all the bad that the great men of history have done. While there is usually some truth to that, they can really come across as nitpicky. This is an example. They'll say that Lincoln was pretty racist against black people. Yeah, but he was much less racist than the average person back then, and he freed the slaves despite political pressure not to do so. Yeah, would an average person have done that? No, because he really threatened the war effort with the Emancipation Proclamation. And yeah, Lincoln violated habeas corpus, but that was the only way he kept Maryland from seceding and making Washington, D.C. surrounded by Confederate states. Imagine if that had happened. Yeah, but he would have had to move the capital somewhere else. He would have had to flee, probably been captured by the Confederates. Probably. The whole war would have changed. My opinion on teaching history is that we should tell them all the bad stuff that happened while also extolling the virtues of Americans throughout history. They should examine the great men, events, battles, dates, etc., but also evaluate social forces at play and how life was for the average person. They should compare the pros and cons of important policies enacted by certain presidents. They should bring up the important questions and assumptions that were debated in important political disagreements, like they could analyze the text of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. That would be a good exercise for them. Ooh, excellent. At the very least, give a neutral view of what both sides of the issue had to say about it. That makes for a balanced and nonpartisan view of history. It also encourages critical thinking and sparks important discussions in the classroom. History should not be a vehicle for political indoctrination. And I will admit both sides kind of do that sometimes. However, I must briefly note that this was the reason for public education in the first place in America, to make those nasty Catholic immigrants more American, aka more Protestant and democratic. But I digress. 
Now this brings us to critical race theory, or CRT, which is yet another way that people learn, young people learn history these days. CRT is a theory which attempts to analyze American history through the lens of racial differences, arguing that laws and institutions in America were created to further a racist or racially biased agenda. Here's an example. Harsher sentencing for citizens convicted of crack cocaine possession or dealing than those convicted of powder cocaine possession or dealing. Since crack cocaine was more common in black communities, more blacks got more prison time than the whites. And people who subscribe to the CRT theory will say, well, that's a redundancy. Who subscribe to CRT? They will say that this is evidence of systemic racism and whitey is bad. Now, on the surface, that can seem correct, right? Like there's a lot of truth in that If, if you just were given that data, yeah. you would say, hmm, that sounds fishy, but you have to dig deeper. Yeah, exactly. Now, I'll say there's a difference between CRT and the way we were taught about racism in our public school days. We both went to public school. In the, uh, in the 2000s, mid-2000s. Yeah. So we were taught to be, anti, to be against racism, but I'll get to that. CRT is part of the larger critical theory school of sociology which defines one group as oppressor and the other as oppressed. You can do this with a lot of different conflicts like Israel, Palestine. You can guess which is which. And you can guess which public schools will tell you is which. Yeah, that's one example. But you can do it almost ad infinitum, rich versus poor, white versus black. You know, Men you, versus women. Yeah, exactly. There is little room for nuance or exceptions with CRT. If you're white, you benefit from being white and harbor innate or even subconscious racism against the groups that your collective group oppresses, even if you happen to be opposed to racism personally. It pits groups against each other and causes division, whereas the way we were taught was meant to discuss the evils of past racism, like Jim Crow, while also trying to talk about how we should be colorblind. That was the way we were taught, but things have changed. We grew up learning that there was nothing inherently different between the races, and we should all play together, as Martin Luther King Jr. said. Nowadays, colorblindness is out and racial identity is in for everybody. In addition to causing racial division, CRT paints America as a white supremacist project from beginning to end, leaving no room for patriotism or civic pride. Critical theory is truly destructive and is literally tearing the country apart. CRT is not the same as teaching our kids about slavery and trying to discourage racism like they try to say on the news. Oh, you don't want us to teach about slavery? That's what yeah. they come back with. Oh, you just want us to lie about history? Yeah, it's a total – they're, they're dodging it. Yeah. They're, they're not defining the word right. Uh, I must say that CRT is a reaction against the traditional interpretation of history. But in my opinion, it swung too far in the other direction. There's got to be a happy medium. There is, I believe you're right. I think there is a happy medium where we can talk about the evils of the past and we can also criticize all groups equally and talk about the virtues of all equally. But I fear that if we do that and we are honest with ourselves and fair, we will find that some groups are different than others. And that's a fact that some don't want to accept. Some don't want to accept that men have invented more things than women. Some don't want to accept that European nations are wealthier than other nations. So there are a lot of questions that that brings up that other people don't want to face. So See, I can understand their hesitation, but that hesitation is a sign of weakness intellectually. You have to face the facts. You they have to face they the acknowledge truth. the facts, but they say it's a result of some kind of prejudice or – Yes, it's a result of this boogeyman. Yeah. And they, they never consider any other alternative, which is the problem. 
So here's a brief history of the American political parties. We start off with the Federalists versus the Democratic Republicans. This was the first party system. First Federalist president was either Washington or Adams, uh, depending on your take there. Washington was famously against political parties, but his beliefs aligned very closely with the Federalists. The first Democratic-Republican president was Jefferson, who first won in the bitter Revolution of 1800. Federalists derived from the group who wanted to replace the Articles of Confederation with the Constitution. Obviously, they won that battle. The Federalists wanted better commerce, banking, and a stronger federal government, though not nearly as strong as it is today. Alexander Hamilton was a famous Federalist. The Anti-Federalists morphed into the Democratic-Republicans, who believed the farmer was the ideal citizen and ultimate bastion of virtue. They distrusted cities and banks and thought that the Federalists were promulgating a plan to enrich merchants at the expense of the common man. They thought that government was going to be tyrannical because the Constitution granted it too many powers. The Federalists preferred a more English way of governance with the elite being able to make the best decisions for the country. While the Democratic Republicans were fans of revolutionary France with its emphasis on the common man and equality. Once Jefferson won the presidency in 1800, Jefferson's party dominated politics until Andrew Jackson, who himself overwhelmed his party and changed it into his image. However, after the War of 1812, the dominant party suffered major divisions as their presidents instituted Federalist policies like the National Bank. So they just kind of absorbed the Federalist policies and still called themselves Democratic Republicans. Now, here's a question. Who would we have sided with in this period? I am so torn. This one might be the hardest one to answer because both of them have good things and bad things. You know, I am hesitant to accept a party that wants a national bank or that wants an extremely strong federal government. I'm, Just stronger than it was. Well, yes, but any any strength you add to it will only cause it to, to grow even faster. So I'm very wary of that, especially me being a 21st century American, knowing what I know now, knowing history that they didn't know then because um, it hadn't happened yet. However, I am wary of the whole anti-federalist love of revolutionary France, and we know how that ended. They didn't know how it would end, but we know. And populism is never really great. Trump was a populist. Yeah, but when you let average people control everything, that's the end of the anticyclosis cycle. And if you don't know what that is, go back and watch episode one of the Sons of Antiquity podcast. So I'm wary of both sides. I don't know who I would have chosen. Do you know that Jefferson quote about watering the tree of liberty with blood? Yes. That was about revolutionary France when they killed their king. Mm. That was that was the background of that quote. Oh, now that I know that, that kind of sours that quote for me because I love that quote. Yeah, because he probably thought he was talking about, I don't about know, American politics. America, yeah, he wasn't. When they were starting to kill people, he said, well, you know, that's you got to water the tree of liberty with the blood of tyrants. That's rough. I guess... I guess that's the chance you take. You're going to take some chances when you have a revolution. It's kind of a coin toss on whether or not you're going to actually succeed. And America was like the one coin toss that worked. But I don't know. Um, Jefferson also said that he preferred dangerous freedom to peaceful slavery, and I tend to agree with that. So I will take that risk. I will water that tree and risk ending up like France because I may win and end up like America. So I guess I'll side with the Federalists this time. I'll side with Jefferson. You mean the Democratic Republicans? Oh, I'm sorry. The Democratic Republicans, I misspoke. I'll side with Jefferson. I, I'm i very torn, too. I'll, just to be fun, I'll say I'm Federalist. Sure. Sure. Why not be contrarian? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now we have the Whigs versus the Democrats. This is the second party system. The Democratic Party, consisting of Jacksonian Democrats, was founded by Andrew Jackson. Considering that the Federalists had been obliterated as a political force, 
The Whigs were born out of a split in the Democratic Party between pro-Jacksonians and anti-Jacksonians. The anti-Jacksonians called themselves the National Republicans, but quickly rallied around their nickname of Whigs. Many old Federalists flocked to this new party. The Democrats embraced even more Democratic ideals than Jefferson and hated banks with a passion. I'm all for that. Jacksonian democracy brought changes such as nearly universal white male suffrage, an increase in elected officials, an increase in executive power at the expense of the elitist Congress, and manifest destiny to give the white farmer more opportunities, less government intervention in the economy, less intervention in infrastructure, and patronage. The Whigs opposed all of that, basically. They wanted to invest in cities, manufacturing, and infrastructure. They feared mob rule and executive overreach. Here's a question. Who would we have cited in this period? Again, I'm very torn because I think Jackson was a great president, but as far as his policies, I okay, I hate banks. So I would I would like him for that reason. Yeah, and I hate central banks. I, uh, I'm just, a crypto guy. You know me. So I hate any of the centralized authorities over money. I just hate all banks. There you go. I hate even Hot the, I, hate the pri- I hate the private ones too. I hate anyone with money who's willing to lend it to me. But uh, no, in all seriousness, though, again, this is kind of a split because I I fear mob rule and executive overreach. Yeah. Uh, but I also don't like the banks controlling everything. His enemies called him King Andy, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I can believe it. So uh, that's a real real toss up there, and I think it just goes to show that here's that nuance we were talking about earlier that other historical interpretations won't cover. They won't allow you to think, hmm, maybe they both had some good ideas there. It's one or the other. And to me, they both had some good good thoughts. You know, I, I guess I'm just bound to support parties that are dying off. So I guess I'll pick Whigs. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Since we, we're Republicans now and that's bound to die too. So yes, you know, might as well just get on the sinking boat each time. <laughs> All right. Now the Republicans versus Democrats, which is the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth party systems will explain. The third-party system lasted from 1854 to the 1890s and saw enormous growth after the Civil War. The first Republican president was Abraham Lincoln. The Whig Party had fallen apart over its unpopular opposition to the Mexican-American War and indecisiveness over the issue of slavery. In 1860, the Republicans burst onto the national scene by winning the presidency and causing most of the southern states to secede. The Republicans were a strongly pro-union party that opposed the expansion of slavery and secession. Two years into the Civil War, I think maybe one year, Lincoln stirred things up by making the war into an abolitionist crusade, which it was not originally. It was just against secession at first. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it became clear that the Republican Party would be abolitionist as well. And a lot of them already were. There were the radical Republicans who wanted abolition and all this other stuff. The Democrats were split between pro-Union and pro-Confederate figures, but they were almost all opposed to emancipation of slaves. During the third-party system, competition was fierce, but a lot of third parties came forth, especially on prohibition and workers' rights and other single issues. The Gilded Age occurred in this era as well. The GOP stood on its success of enfranchising black men, but also on big government spending programs like national banking, railroads, tariffs, and homesteads. The Democrats firmly held the South, especially once Reconstruction was abandoned. The Democrats wanted a lower tariff and to get off the gold standard. It's onto a gold and silver standard, I should oh. say. While the Republicans wanted a high protective tariff and sound money. So they were morphing into the pro-business party. Yes. Now we can ask, which do we support in the third party system? I would say 
that I don't want to get off of gold standard. So whoever whoever's staying on the gold standard, that's me. Okay. Yeah. I I think this is the easiest one, Republican. I yeah. mean, otherwise you're you want slavery, so Yeah, I guess you're kinda of boxed. Or at the least you're there. like super Jim Crow supporting you yeah. know, so I'm not I'm not quite that. So yeah, I think I'll have to pick the Republicans. Then there was the fourth party system. This lasted from mid eighteen nineties until about nineteen thirty two. Besides Wilson's win due to the petty teddy, we'll discuss that later, it was a Republican-dominated era. The main topics uh, were regulations on huge corporations, more tariffs to protect American industry, the gold standard, labor regulations, corruption, prohibition, women's suffrage, racial legislation, immigration, and so much more. It was also the time of the Spanish-American War, World War I, and the strength of America on the global stage. Besides Teddy Roosevelt, the Republicans were pro-big business, and the Democrats positioned themselves as the champions of the little guy, including workers, immigrants, Southerners, farmers, etc. This era generally ignored the race problem. No, I would say I would, I definitely would be a Democrat in this era, besides Teddy Roosevelt. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a tricky one. This, this era was a little bit uh, complex, and there were so many issues there. Like, we didn't even cover them all, but... So many different issues that each politician and each political party was attacking in a different way. Yeah. And there is also this this goes until the six party system starts, which is the split between northern and southern Democrats, which mm-hmm. is very different. Like the southern Democrats are the uh, the racist ones. Yeah, they're the, the ones holding up the one. Yeah. Yeah. Literally all the white hoods are Democrats back then. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> then there's the northern Democrats that are like, let's help immigrants and regulate industry. Yeah. That kind of thing. So. Well, then I guess I probably would have been a Republican at this point because I definitely wouldn't have been voting for Wilson. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wasn't thinking about Wilson. Mm. Never mind. Yeah. I take it back. All right. So now we got the fifth party system, which started in 1932 and saw the beginning of the New Deal coalition under FDR, which ended in 1976. The New Deal was FDR's response to the Great Depression, and it appealed to lots of different people, including blue-collar workers, immigrants, minorities, farmers, and intellectuals. So it was just a vast swath of people. It involved big government projects and was associated with prosperity after World War II because they had been in power, like, you know, four terms of FDR, then Truman, won World War II. Uh, the Republicans stood for business interests during this time, and they got beat pretty badly until Eisenhower. Uh, in the 60s, the Democrats split over racial integration and countercultural issues. Like I was saying, there was the Southern Democrats and Northern Democrats. The Southern Democrats, we'll get to them, but they were they were the ones in the South who kept – they actually ran against the regular Democrats at one point because they, they wanted segregation and yeah, to, all this Yeah, to maintain stuff. like the Jim Crow type era yeah. uh, laws. Yes. And uh, at this point, the Republicans were s- smart and they stood for law and order. Which was appealing to people in a time of very in the '60s, yeah, yeah, very tumultuous time, a lot of violence. And this, uh, we have to say, which one we like in oh, that period? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We can't, we can't forget that. I, I guess I'm gonna probably start to side with Republicans here. Law and order. Uh, that's that's number one. At the end of the day, people want safety and security, financially and, and physically. Yeah, I, I just can't stand FDR for so many reasons. So I'm oh, gonna yeah. have to say Republican too. So now that brings us to the sixth party system, which is the current system we're in. And it started around 1976, as we mentioned earlier. Republicans stand for conservative social positions and more laissez-faire economics. Uh, More is a relative term there. While Democrats are socially liberal and proponents of big government economics. Republicans look up to Reagan and Democrats look up to Obama. 
This is the country we live in today. And I think you can guess which one we adhere to, so we're not going to say it. Uh, Now, let's talk about notable historical third parties that were not mentioned in episode 10. Check it out. It's great. The know-nothings. They didn't want immigration at all. They just thought closed the borders entirely. But the membership in the party was secret. So if you ask someone, "Are are you in that party? They say, I don't know. I know nothing. There's a Constitutional Union Party, which was a Civil War era party. They are pro-union but ant- and anti-secession, but not anti-slavery. So these are the slave states that were part of the Union, yes. like Kentucky. Now we got the – you can say the Republicans were a third party at the time. And when Lincoln won as a Republican, they kind of stopped being a third party because they started dominating. Mm-hmm. But you could say they're the most successful third party – in U.S. history. Yeah, because uh, up until then, Whigs and Democrats dominated, and then all of a sudden, Lincoln comes out Republican, and then it totally shifts everything. Yeah, because Republicans kind of came out of nowhere mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, you can say they kind of descended from Whigs, but there are a lot of differences too. Now, you got the Southern Democrats, or the Dixiecrats, as I called them. They were originally the pro-slavery Southerners, but in the mid-1900s, they became a pro-segregation third party. I believe they ran in the 50s or 60s. As and, an official... Yeah, and they got electoral votes. Wow. I think William Wallace, maybe? I don't, it's some big name like that. You got the Bull Moose Party, made it one election. It was the renegade third party where, uh, quote, Petty Teddy Roosevelt ran against his own party. It was short-lived, but it was enough of a split to cause Wilson to win the election. Great. Thanks, Teddy. It stood for progressivism and wanted to regulate big business more. And don't forget about the socialists led by the famous Eugene Debs, The Socialist Party stood for, well, socialism, of course. They got 6% of the national vote in 1912. That's pretty scary. I didn't realize that when I... It's sad that the socialists got more of the national (laughs) vote than any libertarian ever has. That's sad, bro. Speaking of which, libertarians are next. Socially liberal, and they support free market economics. They range from anarchists to small government conservatives. They basically want the government to stop doing almost everything it currently does. The government is evil to them. And um, despite all of their freedom-loving, they can never seem to win any elections, really, ever. Then there's the Green Party. They support strong protections on the environment and social liberalism. We covered both the Libertarian Party and Green Party in Episode 10, as Evan mentioned just a moment ago. So check out both of those parts. It's a two-part episode. All right. Now let's get to the main event, our choices for greatest presidents and our reasoning. Woo! Wow. Now, first, let's say, is this the greatest or best list? Or, like, is it greatest or our favorites? I believe it is greatest because yeah. we had some controversial picks on here that neither of us wanted to put on. But we put them on anyway, especially one, and you can probably guess who it is. We put him on here because of what he did in his foreign policy, not because of what he did domestically. We absolutely abhor everything he did domestically. but Most things. Most things. But we do give him credit where credit is due. With his foreign policy. So with that being said, I think it's the greatest, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's what we're going to have to do. Otherwise, it's a bunch of no names, you know? Yeah, because <laughs> our, our favorites would be like guys who never did anything, right? I Maybe love a president some. who doesn't do anything because that's what the president's supposed to do, you know? Uh, the, the executive branch of the federal government is supposed to be very small, in my opinion. So a president who doesn't do much, that's a guy I like. However, we tried to be objective and say, did they actually help the country? Or give the people what they wanted. Mm-hmm. So Now, in order of date, not number one through number seven, here are our picks for the greatest presidents. So first up is George Washington. Probably, in my opinion, 
the great. I agree. This, the best. He is number one. But being that we're going in chronological order, he's also number one. Pros, he was a great general, won us independence, big part of the constitutional effort, universally loved, he's on the $1 bill, governed well, he stabilized currency, didn't become a king or dictator, even though he would have been applauded for it and had the opportunity to do it. And he hated political parties. He said, don't form political parties in his speech as he was leaving office. And what did we do? We formed As they parties. were forming parties. <laughs> yeah, literally people were doing it like as he was talking. Um, but the cons of Washington would be he used troops on a rebellion against uh, whiskey taxes and signed pro-slavery laws like the Fugitive Slave Act. But other than that, I mean, the guy did a pretty good job. I will just say that using troops on a rebellion against taxes is the epitome of irony. Yeah, it really is. I mean, considering the American Revolution was started for less. Yes. But they said, but you elected us now, so it's good. We can tax you however much we want. Uh-huh. Get back. Mm. Get back home. Secondly, Thomas Jefferson. Pros, he did the Louisiana Purchase, which doubled the size of America. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. He brought democracy back from the elites to the people. He was a main driver of pushback against Adams's Alien and Sedition Acts, which fa- famously saw Democratic Republicans, politicians, like journalists. Um, As treasonous? Yeah, they were arrested. And that was a, I mean, Jefferson was probably rubbing his hands together when that was going on. Like, yeah, I'm going to win now. <laughs> yeah. It looks great for him. And uh, Jefferson beat the Barbary Pirates. He idolized the farmer. He was probably one of the greatest autodidacts in American history. He taught himself everything. He built his own house after learning architecture for himself. I really want to go to Monticello. I'll go there someday. He created West Point, saw Native Americans as equals in theory, and he abolished the international slave trade to the U.S. Uh, Cons, he did do the quasi-war, which was rough. He owned slaves. He was objectively a heretic. He literally revised the Bible. He got rid of all the miracles in it. Oh, really? I didn't know he removed the miracle. It's called Jefferson's Bible. You can buy it. But he just took all the miracles out to make it naturalistic. Oh. So, you know. Uh, he supported the French Revolution. He removed Native Americans from their lands, and he did the Embargo Act, which was arguably even more of an overreach than the Alien and Sedition Acts were. Mm, so that's a little ironic, too. Yeah, in the fact that the Louisiana Purchase was technically unconstitutional. They didn't have the power actually to buy new land. Oh. They just kind of said hush, hush. And, oh, well, we, yeah. we got a bunch of land out of it. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Next up is Andrew Jackson. Pros. First president to come from true poverty. He fought the bank. He was just a general badass. He empowered the common man. Treated the native tribes better than their enemies would have, that's for sure. I don't know if I would have included that on the list. Uh, he stood against secession in the nullification crisis. He supported term limits, exposed massive fraud in the government, stood up for a woman's honor against rumors. First assassination attempt against the president, he beat up the assassin with a cane. If that's not badass, I don't know what is. The guy tried to fire two guns at him and both misfired. Wow. How could you be more lucky? Yeah, and then they tested it afterward and both fired perfectly. So people were like, oh, he was saved by God. Perhaps. Yeah. Can't maybe. say, I mean, you can't prove that he wasn't. So he got so mad, he just got his cane out and beat the dude to a pulp. Nice. He had to be restrained to not kill him. Wow. Just I, with his cane. But, hit. I mean, how would you have reacted? Some guy, dude just tried to kill you. You'd probably try I to mean, kill him. I'm not saying it's bad. That's why I put it in the process. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> now, here are some cons of Andrew Jackson. He increased the power of the executive branch a lot at the expense of Congress. He did the Trail of Tears, 
that may or may not be a con, depending on your opinion. Supported slavery, replaced uh, trained bureaucrats with his supporters. The spoils system, very corrupt. Had a divorcee as a wife, uh, wanted to end the Electoral College, and didn't like Supreme Court uh, being able to give binding decisions. And he was a Freemason, so he was probably Illuminati. Yeah, oh, I should have put that for Washington, too. Dang. Oh, yeah. All right. (laughs) Moving on to Abraham Lincoln. Pros, he freed the slaves. He kept the country from splitting. He had a reconciliatory attitude to Southerners, and he was virtuous in general. However, let me just say, if he hadn't freed the slaves, I don't think he'd be on the list. No. No. No, especially with how ruthless the Northern Army was in in the Civil War. Well, they had to be near to win near the end because they they tried. I mean, war is war. I I agree. So cons, over half a million Americans died because he didn't like secession. He declared war on fellow Americans. He caused bad precedent with ignoring the Constitution like habeas corpus and censorship of the newspapers. He inspired the 14th Amendment, which is used to justify everything. Did he know that? Basically, it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, abortion, gay marriage, about everything. They just say, oh, 14th Amendment. Yes. We can do what we want. It's a blank check, really. Yeah. And uh, it had good intentions, I will say. Like, with context, it wasn't bad. But what it's been used for since, well. And he was he did the first use of the income tax. Ooh. Although it was, it was taken away as soon as the war was over. Wilson was the first one to do it, for real. Bring it back, yeah. Then there's Teddy Roosevelt. One of our personal favorites here. Uh, Pros, conservationist and outdoorsman, powerful leader and speaker, even when shot. Uh, Youngest president to take office at the age of 42. He broke up railroad monopolies. He uh, helped the Panama Canal project get underway. And he won the Nobel Peace Prize for mediating the Russo-Japanese War. And he did so much other stuff that we couldn't even include in the episode. High energy, Teddy. Very high energy. Even got his eyeball knocked out, which we mentioned in the fighting episode. Um, So really all around man's man. But here are some cons. He expanded the role of the executive branch. He created a precedent of Team America World Police, so to speak, with his arguments for Western international intervention. He infringed on states' powers with regards to policing, and there was the whole Cuban interference and Platt Amendment issue. All right. So now the one that we don't like, but we put on the list. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Pros. He led the World War II effort. He gave American people hope again. He didn't become total dictator, even though what is many of the people in the Brain Trust were huge Mussolini fans back before Mussolini wasn't cool anymore. And he ended prohibition. But let's look at all these cons. Uh, <laughs> terrible economic policies that didn't fix the Great Depression and were just stupid. Like, let's just pay people to not grow food to try to raise the price of crops. I mean, yeah, what could go wrong? I mean, when the country's already starving, but whatever. Uh, he dramatically expanded welfare state. He started Social Security. He did a lot more regulation of industry, so much so that even the Supreme Court told him it was unconstitutional. He broke the tradition of the two-term maximum of, on presidency. Yeah, he served four terms. Yes. He put Japanese Americans in internment camps. He tried to pack the Supreme Court. He didn't help Jewish refugees from Europe much even when there was a lot of evidence that they were fleeing from something dangerous. He was willing to throw blacks under the bus for pragmatic reasons. He, there, was, there was a possibility of some anti-lynching legislation. He said, I'm not going to sign it because I know like, my Democrats aren't going to sign a single thing I support if I sign this. So. Yeah. 
Also, a serial adulterer had so many affairs, it's ridiculous. Wow, for a guy in a wheelchair, he's just getting around. <laughs> Less than JFK, though, probably. And I can't even get a text back. And last, we have Dwight Eisenhower. Pros, very bipartisan, awesome general, ended Korean War, did in the interstate highway system. He hated communism, but opposed McCarthyism. He integrated the military and uh, D.C., implemented Brown versus Board uh, with full force, created NASA, funded science, refused to use nukes despite great pressure to do so in Korea and China, avoided getting involved in Vietnam, legitimized Franco, and uh, let Egypt have the Suez Canal. But here are the cons. America was humiliated by Sputnik. Yeah, that the fact that they beat us there was like a wake-up call. Okay, we got to catch up to the Russians. And he started the military-industrial complex as we know it today. Despite in his final speech saying that there is a conspiracy of the military-industrial complex, he's the one who started it. So so much irony with these presidents. Yeah. <laughs> now, I will say I'll add, I'm adding a few of the points that I consider debatable. Okay. Um, he overthrew a lot of left-wing leaders and covert ops around the globe, like peacefully elected people. For example, Iran, he replaced like a socialist candidate or a socialist president-elect with basically a, a ruthless dictator. And he's the one who ended up being replaced in the Iranian revolution. Oh, yeah. So he's like the reason that Iran is crazy now. Mm. But It's there, all that moderate rebel stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say I think the interstate highway system is a debatable point. Yeah, we're going to have a future episode about that because Evan really hates cars. Yeah, I drive one, but only out of necessity. Yes. He kind of created a monster with that, in my opinion. We'll get more into it in the future, though. Now, here's my honorable mention. Grover Cleveland, the one we know and love, except most people haven't heard of him. So he was the first president to respect unions enough to make them a part of labor negotiations during a strike instead of just sending the forces out against the union or against the union workers and shooting at them or making them go home. He didn't mess with the economy too much. Now, let me say this. Why did I not include Reagan on this list? I'll tell you why. He started the debt problem that still plagues us today, and he admitted this. He said it was his biggest regret, but you did it anyway. When you lower taxes and don't lower spending, I mean, it's going to happen. Tell me. And the Soviet Union probably would have collapsed without Reagan's arm race and rhetoric anyway. He didn't live up to his campaign promises like eliminating the Department of Education. He naturalized illegal immigrants in one of the biggest immigration deals in history. Come on, man. Yeah, a lot of flaws with Reagan. Now, here are my honorable mentions. Only controversial picks for me. Let's talk about JFK. His domestic agenda was your typical northern liberal plan, although he did want to lower taxes and the recession did clear up within his first year in office. But had it not been for Kennedy... Nuclear war may have erupted on Earth, and none of you would be able to listen to this incredible podcast. I mean, let's be honest, that's the biggest loss that we would have suffered from nuclear war. Uh, he de-escalated the Cuban Missile Crisis and also intended to reduce involvement in Vietnam. He also helped us go to the moon. He was much more moderate than modern Democrats, that's for sure. So despite all his flaws, I think he definitely deserves an honorable mention. And what about good old DJT? He got Little Rocket Man to meet with Moon Jae-in of South Korea. That's historic. Three of the five meetings that have ever happened happened under Trump's watch. He had some of the lowest black and Hispanic unemployment numbers, a strong economy, and was one of the few major international voices to oppose lockdowns and restrictions due to the unspecified virus of unknown origin. He ended up being a true moderate president, I think, and he should get a medal for subverting so many expectations 
and doing as much as he did with so much antagonism on the other side. Despite his many, many, many flaws, and I will admit he has many flaws, he was a true Chad in a sea of Jeb Bushes, Joe Bidens, Elizabeth Warrens, and Pete Buttigieg's. And that has to count for something. Let me say, I, I must interject. <laughs> I will say, I mean, he's the one who started all this lockdown stuff, and he didn't really end it during his time. And he's the reason Fauci is among us now. That is true. Fauci is sus. He is among us. Uh, but there was very little I think he could do without alienating his base. I mean, if he had, he was in a tough spot. I'll just, I'll say that he was in a tough spot and he didn't want to engage in executive overreach and force these states to comply and say no lockdowns. In a way, you could argue that he was trying to preserve the status of his, his office. I don't know. Like I said, many flaws, but yeah, I think he does deserve some credit where credit's due. And in all seriousness, the first five presidents were probably the best. Can't say enough great things about Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. Really awesome dudes. We had a good run for that little bit. Finally, when will we have our next great president, or is the age of the dictator for life finally upon us? I've had this theory a while of the 0-16-32-48 rule. Most important presidents at hugely critical times in U.S. history, I would say, are Washington, who was zero or he was the pre-president president. president. So we can call him zero, and he was also first. But there's Lincoln at 16th and FDR at 32. Are you seeing a trend every 16 presidents? So there, there are many important figures between them, but I say they're the most important at the most pivotal times in U.S. history. With this trend, maybe the 48th president will be the next great one. Biden is number 46, so he needs to hurry up, whoever it is. I don't think it's Trump. We have lived through a time of impotent presidents and partisan gridlock. Even when one party controls the Oval Office, Senate, and House, they can't seem to get anything done. I can't see Biden declaring himself dictator for life. But people are really tired of the status quo and may be willing to accept a strong, capable leader sometime in the near future. No, Bloomberg and Zuckerberg, not you. Okay, I know you're getting excited. Please, please, not you. (laughs) I don't believe Trump's the right fit for it either due to his age and divisiveness. But who knows? Now, I agree that the timing seems right for number 48 to be the chosen one. But as bad as things are now, I have a feeling that a real crisis may be upon us even before that. Things have a tendency to be fine until they aren't fine, and then everything falls apart very quickly. We must be careful not to fall into the normalcy bias and assume that our current woes will magically get better, while also avoiding an equally unhelpful doomsday bias. So I don't really know. It's a very tough call here. The signs sure do look like they are pointing towards crisis, though, and with said crisis will come a strong man who will assume power. History demands this. Biden certainly won't go full Sulla. I don't think he will declare himself dictator, But someone in the near future will. And whoever does will have to be charismatic, strong, relatively young, I'd say no older than 60 at least, and have a great plan. Now, alternatively, different regions around the United States looking to protect their own interests could have their own strong men rise up against a flailing, pathetic federal government and lead to secession, balkanization, and bring our current crisis to a head and hopefully resolve it through a splintering civil war. That may be the only way out. I have more hope than that. I hope there's no balkanization. I mean, you just have to look at what happened in the Balkans to not want that to happen here. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. The sociological forces are, are pulling the strings here. Yep. Just social forces. No strong men. Nope. Uh, let's go to our takeaways. I think we've had a good discussion. 
War is a common part of American history, but it is not generally correlated with a president's favorability or ranking. There are many different ways to interpret and teach history, and all the major schools of thought have flaws and omissions, but critical theory is truly destructive. Ranking presidents is highly dependent on one's own ideology and subjective factors. The Republican and Democratic parties have been dominant for a while, but other major parties have existed and the policies of alignments of the parties have changed drastically over time. Every party fears executive overreach until they're in power. That's not my learn. Very wise there. And the future of the Republic is truly a mystery. So here are our lingering questions. With the draft being unused for decades, will we start to see a lot more non-veteran presidents? I think that's fair. Yeah, Absolutely. I definitely think so. We're, we're getting to the point where, what was the last draft, Vietnam? Yeah. So, like boomers, pretty much? Yeah, the okay. boomer generation was the last to experience a draft. But they're, they're aging out, yeah. So, yeah. like, uh, that once that generation is gone, there will be no generations left to experience the draft. Yeah, I mean, the proportion of Americans who have been in the military since the draft ended is very low. So I think we're going to see a lot less veteran presidents from sure. now on. And it's become politics is becoming more of a career choice where you just decide I'm going to go into politics, not, oh, I was in the military. Now I'm fit for politics. Are short wars a thing of the past? Yes. Unfortunately, I agree. I, I think that's just a s- simple answer. I don't think – based on the last few wars we've had, uh, except for the Gulf War, really, they just get so – Tangled. There's so many entangling alliances. It's almost like World War One. It's like you can't go into a country and do something without a it getting political, b it affecting so many other countries who have alliances with this person, and and it gets all mixed up. Syria is the worst example there, and Syria and Afghanistan, truly, truly complex wars with plagued with problems like Vietnam had, and I'm afraid that's just going to continue. Now, is there more merit to the traditional? the libertarian or the progressive interpretation of history, if only one can be chosen. What do you think, Evan? I like the traditional best. Just It really cuts the chase, gives you the important stuff. And if you wanted to learn all the other nuance later, I, th- I think it would be a good base level of knowledge to know the traditional interpretation. I agree. And I, I think that previous generations just knew more about history because that's how they were taught. Well, traditional. Yeah. And history was just more of a focus back in the day. Education was just of higher quality, I think. Hmm, maybe. But it was it was less like, let's discuss what other people, what other countries thought. It was more like, America was great for this reason. And, well, there, while there may be some truth or falsity to that narrative, it is good for a nation to kind of it's to teach It's good for a nation to teach that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. All right. Would a strongman president help America get back to its sanity or cause it to sink deeper into failure? I don't think it would help it get back to the way it was because we had that. We've seen that in history before with, as I mentioned earlier, Sulla. He tried to restructure Roman uh, Roman government and the Roman customs in order to revert back to the republic. He thought he could save the republic, but you can't. You can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. It doesn't work like that. That's not anacyclosis. The cycle will continue no matter what a strong man does. So he may bring law and order. And in that respect, he will fix things. But we will never return to how we were unless secession happens and it's a new country, you know, formed from the ashes of the old or some something drastic changes that I can't even imagine. But certainly a strong man will not bring us back to the constitution as it was. What say you? I think they could potentially help 
But not, yeah, not in an original constitutional way, for sure. Yeah, I agree. You can't get, you can't bring about the constitution with totalitarianism. It's, it's a contradiction. I agree. Anything else you'd like to add, sir, before we wrap it up? That's all I have. Excellent. As Jocko says, that's all I've got for tonight. Well, with that being said, thank you for listening. That's all for today's show. Join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom. 